If it's your first time with us uh, tonight, we've been uh, walking through the book of Romans um, since the beginning of last semester. And uh, we've been going at a pretty quick pace because I didn't want to spend the, your entire college career in the book of Romans, which can easily be done. Um, and so we were going at a pretty quick pace. And as we get here to Romans chapter 8, we decided to slow things down a bit and to uh, take a breather and to take in all that is there in Romans 8. Because Romans 8 is sort of like a linchpin for the book of Romans. It takes a lot of the major themes that were discussed earlier on in the book and starts applying them to your life. Now that we know who Christ is, who we are, who we are in Christ, and we've unpacked the gospel, Romans chapter 8 is nearing the, the pinnacle of the mountain, if you will, and begins applying these truths to your life in really um, important ways. Um, last week, uh, we spent most of our time focusing primarily on the hostility of the flesh, this hostility of the flesh towards God and to the things of the Spirit. We've been focusing on the mind that is set on the flesh versus the mind that is set on the Spirit. And these are two totally different and opposite things. They're opposed to one another and there's hostility towards those things. And because of that, we were challenged to set your minds then on the things of the Spirit. We talked about um, what are some ways we do that? What does that look like? How can you tell in your life if your mind is set on the Spirit? Um, as we move forward in Romans chapter 8 tonight, particularly we're going to look in verses 10 through 17. There's a lot of things that we could cover. A lot of ground that we could cover that could take a considerable amount of time. Um, but for the sake of your time tonight, um, we're going to just focus on four things that are true if Christ is in you. Four things that are true if Christ is in you. And so uh, let's stand together. I know you just sat down, but let's stand together to honor the reading of God's Word because... What we have before us in the scriptures is something special. It's something holy. Um, God is literally speaking to us when we read this word. Um, so we stand to honor that. So let's read the word together, starting in verse... Actually, I'll back up for context, and we'll start in verse 9. Verse 9 of Romans 8. The word of God says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption 
as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we do. We thank you for your word. We do not take it lightly. And God, we ask that as we look to your word tonight, as we consider it, and we uh, attempt to discern and to learn from your word and to apply it to our life, that you would bless us with your spirit. We are incapable in our flesh of pleasing you and of understanding rightly. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the Scripture, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say for us, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son for his glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. So the title of the sermon tonight is, If Christ is in You. If Christ is in You. And as I said, we're going to be looking at four things that are true if Christ is in you. Just by way of outline, we'll be looking at if Christ is in you, you have life. And if Christ is in you, you will mortify sin. If Christ is in you, know that you are sons of God. And if Christ is in you, you will suffer unto glory. So that's where we're going tonight. And we'll begin uh, right away in verse 10 with if Christ is in you, you have life. If Christ is in you, you have life. So this passage begins in verse 10 with a but. And I, I, would, be, uh, you know, I would be fired from my position as a pastor at Primitive Road over college students if I didn't quote our former college pastor who would say, you always pay attention to the buts in Scripture. Not B-U-T-T-S's, but B-U-T-S's. So pay attention to the buts in Scripture. Because what they're doing is they're setting up a contrast. That they're catching our attention that what has been said is true, but there's another side of the story. Right? It's setting up a contrast. And this but here in verse 10 is setting up the contrast to the second half of verse 9, where it says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Right? We've said multiple times in this uh, series through Romans that Jesus Christ and faith in Him is the only way to salvation, is the only way to life, and the only way to get in Christ is to receive the Spirit of Christ. And so there is a reality that there are people who do not possess the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ does not dwell within them. They are then in their flesh, as Paul would say. And if this is true, if they do not have the Spirit of Christ, then they do not belong to Him. And so he sets up this opposition, this contrast, and says, but if Christ is in you, and then he goes and gives us all this good news. As we said last week, there is a real ontological difference between those who belong to Christ and who, those who don't. They have different natures. And these natures are as different and hostile to one another as death and life. 
And that theme that has really been carrying on since chapter 5 of Romans will continue into uh, our text even tonight. So he says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now this contrasting statement sets up a series of if-then statements. If-then conditional statements. If this is true, then this is true. Uh, uh, look at verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, we can add it, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Do you see how this if-then is flowing? Now, if you're paying close attention, we're just kind of getting into this. He says, if Christ is in you. And then in verse 11, it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you. So the question is, which one is it? Is Christ in you? Believer, Christian, is Christ in you? Or is the Holy Spirit in you? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. If you are a believer, Christ dwells in you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Added another vowel there. So not to confuse the persons in the Trinity and the Godhead, but the role of the Spirit in the work of redemption is to come and to dwell within the believer, uniting him or her with Christ as they are one. Spirit and Son are, are one being sharing this divine essence. They are one, in perfect union with one another. They're distinct from one another. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, but they are both God. You see? And because of this uh, intimate, indivisible union between the Son and the Spirit, you can truly say that Christ is in you and the Spirit is in you. And if in the particular way, if you really want to get precise with sort of the theology of it, is through the work of the Spirit who unites us to the person of the Son. So think about it like this. How do you have access to Christ who is in heaven? Right? How do you personally have access to Christ? You're on this earth. Christ is in heaven. How do you have access through to him? that is through this indwelling of the Spirit, who, uh, as it were, sort of brings us to Christ, or, uh, and Christ to us. You see? So, the Scripture will, will say both of these things. Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, the Spirit of Christ. Um, and this is due to that intimate unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the cool thing is, we get to participate in that. As believers, we get to participate in that intimate unity with Father, Son, and Spirit. And that really is the source of all spiritual life because we are in union with God. And this community of love for one another, Father, Son, and Spirit, we get brought right up into the middle of that. 
So if you ever think that like God is just absent from you, God doesn't love you and he's just kind of watching you, if Christ is in you, you have the love of God. Like you are caught up in and sort of set right up in the middle of the love between Father, Son, and Spirit because his Spirit dwells within you. And this is the source of all life. This is the life that led to creation. If you ever thought about why God created anything, because you, you remember God is eternal. There's never been a time that God um, wasn't. He has been God forever, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this creation, this physical um, creation that we live in and, and us, we all have a beginning. Creation has a beginning. So there was an eternity prior to creation. So why did God create? Maybe he was lonely. Maybe he was lonely. He was just really bored up there in, in heaven, whatever that is. Didn't have anyone to talk to. And so he just wanted to create some things to talk to and to enjoy and to do that. Eh, does that seem off? Maybe. Maybe this sounds more appropriate. He wanted someone to love. He needed someone to love. And so he created. That's not quite it either. Because you understand our God is triune. Our God is three persons. He has eternally loved. The Father has eternally loved the Son through the Spirit forever. Perfectly happy in that. Perfectly content. And so God's creation, and Jonathan Edwards really kind of expounded upon this, is God's creation is an overflow of that love for the Son. It's like a fountain that just won't stay contained, a fountain of love that just overflows. And when it overflows, it creates life, right? This is our God. This is how he's created. This is who he is. This is his nature. And now as we believe in Christ and because of the gospel, we are brought into that divine love that creates life. So if Christ is in you, you have life. You have that kind of life, eternal life. Eternal life is not just quantity of time, but it's a type of time, a quality of time. It's knowing God. And so this is a very particular type of life. It's the life of God. But he also says here in chapter 8, verse 11, that it's a type of life that that knows and has experienced death. And that's something that God hadn't eternally experienced. It took the incarnation of the Son to take on human flesh to die. God cannot die. If God died, everything would cease to exist because He upholds all things. So God became a man who could then die and atone for his sins. So that we, we, there's lots of good theology there. So we see this Son of God, come take on flesh. He lives among us, right? He bears our sin. He's put forward for sin as that sin offering that said earlier in chapter 8. Condemns sin in the flesh through his death, but he's raised. So now there's a type of life that we have through the Spirit that's not merely this creative life, but is a resurrected life. It's a life that has fallen and has been corrupted by that fall and has experienced corruption and death but then life afterwards. 
Think about this. In Genesis 2, uh, chapter 2, after he has, uh, God has just created Adam out of the ground. So Adam's name, Adam, is, is related to the word, the Hebrew word for dirt, soil. So his name literally means like from the dirt, dirt man. So he's made this man from the, the ground and he's lifeless. He's lifeless. Listen at uh, verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2. He says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God breathed into Adam and he became a living creature. The connection here that we don't quite get as English speakers is the word breathe in Hebrew is the same word as spirit. In a lot of ancient languages, that's the case. Uh, wind, breath, spirit, it's all the same word. And so as God's breath breathed into Adam, he became a living creature. So does God's breath, his spirit, when he breathes upon us, when we're converted, when we're saved and born again, and he brings life to our dead, corrupted souls. And that spiritual life, that spiritual resurrection that we experience is but a foretaste of the complete resurrection that we will experience bodily on the last day. And so he says, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life uh, because of righteousness. It says the, the body, and this word body here is different than the word flesh that we've been dealing with in verse 8. So flesh is sarks, body is soma. And so this is soma. This is not talking about the flesh. This is talking about the body. The body is subject to death because of the sin of that first Adam. Remember Romans chapter 5. We, if you weren't here for that sermon, it's on the podcast feed. It's on YouTube. Romans chapter 5. These two Adams. Because of the disobedience of that first Adam, death entered into the world. But he says that the spirit is now life. The spirit is subject to life because of the righteousness of that second Adam. Because he was obedient, we are therefore justified and made right before God and have peace with God and will have eternal life and resurrection on that last day. See, the gospel is more about, it's more than just getting your soul into heaven. Right? It's, it's more about just getting your soul into heaven where you'll float around in the clouds for eternity. The gospel is about the redemption of all things. So God so loved the world, everything. This world that he created and called good, that has been marred and destroyed by sin, he loved it. And he came into the world to redeem it and save it. And that includes your physical bodies. That, that though we die because of sin, that the spirit is life because of the righteousness of Christ and we will be raised on, the last, on that last day. And how do we know that? Because Jesus was raised. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in us who believe. And that's the logic there. So this, this is important because this offers hope for the sick and the dying. And at some point in all of our lives, that's going to be us. Some of you have dealt with chronic sickness and pain. Some of you have experienced death recently. And, and all of us will one day um, experience this. And this passage, and, and especially as we continue on in Romans chapter 8, 
uh, it, we need to have down deep because it is an anchor and it's hope for us in these times of suffering. Because the resurrection of our spirits is a type of guarantee of a resurrection of our bodies. How do we know, Lord, that this, is, uh, that this isn't all that there is? That, I'm just, that I just die in a pitiful moment of corruption and then that's it. How do we know that? Because if Christ is in you, you have life. And that spirit that you have is a down payment that God will fulfill all these other promises of glorification to you. Listen at Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's the, he's the down payment of our inheritance. He's the proof that God's not going to uh, fall back on his promises to us, that God's not going to cheat you and promise you eternal life in a glorified body and fail to deliver on his promise. The Holy Spirit is a seal and a guarantee that that's not going to happen. And it's that same Spirit who raised Jesus who dwells in you. So there's an empty grave in Jerusalem. And that is evidence that one day all of our graves will be empty. Was it notes from the Tilter World we watched recently? He's walking through a graveyard. And he's like, this is a garden. <laughs> Imagine that. I, th I thought about that. We had to bury a dear friend of ours a few months ago. And walking through that graveyard, all these tombstones, and it's like, this is a garden in which seeds have been planted and are waiting for that last day when they will sprout into a glorified life that is greater and more glorious and, and far better in a greater degree than a seed is from a plant. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That what will come out of that ground is the same person as a seed is the same as the plant but it's far more glorious than we can even think of and that is true that is true and that is our hope our hope is not just heaven in the clouds one day but our hope is the resurrection of the body and the restoration of all things so if Christ is in you you have resurrected life presently and in the future even more even more. So hopefully that just whets your appetite. See, we should, a Christian should have this longing for that life. That, that longing to be done with sin and its effects. I love when we sing Joy to the World at our house. We sing Joy to the World year-round because it's like it's Hudson's favorite song. So we sing it in July and August. But the kid's favorite verse is the third verse that no one sings. No more let sins and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The Christian life is longing, and they're like so ready for there not to be thorns. <laughs> they can run through the woods and not get caught on wait-a-minute vines. Y'all know what wait-a-minute vines are? <laughs> it's those big, fat, sharp, pokey vines, and so if you're running through the woods, you, you get caught on them and you say, wait a minute, because wait-a-minute vines. <laughs> There'll be no thorns. There'll be no thistles. There'll be no death. 
He swallowed it up. He's wiped tears away from all faces. Right? This is the, the real stuff of our faith. So second point. If Christ is in you, you will then mortify sin. As the kids' song says, sin messed everything up. Oh no. Sin messed everything up. Sin is why we have this corruption. Sin is why we have this pain and this loss and this suffering. And we know that. And we've been freed from it. So why would we continue to entertain it? Why would we continue to let it live in our body? Would you make friends with the, the criminal who murdered your brother? Sin is the criminal who murdered our Savior. You see, if Christ is in you, you will be done with sin. You will put it to death. You will mortify it. Um, hear what he says, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says we're debtors. We owe something because of what has been said in this passage. But we're, we're not debtors to the flesh. We're debtors to the Spirit. We need to obey the Spirit. We follow the Spirit. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It reminds me of the John Owen quote that I've referenced many times in Romans. Is, be killing sin or sin be killing you. And that's literally what it says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. Remember that hostility between flesh and spirit and then make war. Make war. That's what we're called to do. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's war. It's oftentimes it's gritty. Oftentimes it's dirty. And a lot of times you end up injured along the way. Some of you in your struggle with sin... May, may walk away with like a lifelong injury in this fight with sin. But it's worth it because if you, you by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you have life. You have life. It's far better to walk through this fallen world with a limp than to walk through this fallen world dead. Those are our options. And if Christ is in you, you will put to death the deeds of the body. You will mortify sin. So a couple things. How to kill sin. How do you, how do you kill sin so that kills not, sin's not killing you? Very, very important here. Notice what it says. I love how particular Paul is here where he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die and if I were writing this, I would have wrote, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But that's not how Paul wrote it. What did he say? He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know why I fail at putting my sin to death so often? Because I don't try to do it by the Spirit. I leave that phrase out and I just try to put it to death in my own strength and my own flesh. And that's dumb. <laughs> that's stupid. 
It's a war. It's a battle. These are opposing armies. And when I try to put to death the deeds of my body, I put to death my sin by my own sinful flesh, that's like asking someone on the opposing army to kill their own people. Like, it's not going to happen. Right? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit. So how do you do that? How do you kill sin? Well, the first thing you do is you confess sin. You confess it. You bring it to the light and you confess it. And this, in order to confess sin, you need to be convicted of sin. And it's the job of the Spirit to bring conviction of sin. So if you've ever sat under the preaching of the Word and you have felt convicted, you have felt like, I'm guilty of this. He's preaching to me. Think the Holy Spirit. Because He's the one bringing to you that. And one, one of these days I'm going to preach a sermon on the goodness of conviction of sin. Because if there, there's anything that your generation of Christians need to hear, it's that conviction is a blessing and a good thing. Because there's so many of uh, Christians, and not just your generation, but also my generation and the one before us, is conviction is bad. Right? We don't want conviction because that's uh, not affirming who I am. That's not love. This hurts. You know? But conviction is good. It's a gift of grace that the Holy Spirit does. And so we need conviction. Thank God for conviction of sin because it leads us to confess that sin, to repent of that sin, to be freed from it, and to have life. You see? Without conviction of sin, there, there's no life. We need it. So confess sin. Bring it to the light. Confess it first to the Lord. Bring it to Him. He, he already knows. You're not fooling Him. Bring it out. Bring it to the light. And then if it's a particularly powerful sin that you don't, that's just eating your lunch, and you need help with it, confess it to a trusted brother or sister in Christ who can help you with it. And that requires trust, right? And that's what I was talking about. These deep relationships that you need to have with one another because you're going to have to have these conversations one day. Like you're going to have something that's just eating you up and you just can't go anywhere with it, but you don't have anyone you trust to take it to. Go ahead and get ahead of that. Build trust, build relationships that are based upon the word that has this, this gospel first, this gospel safety that says, you know what? The gospel says we're all sinners. So if I come to you and tell you I'm a sinner, you should not be surprised, yeah. right? Because the gospel calls us out. It doesn't just say that we're a sinner. It says that we're really bad sinners. That, that we're so sinful that the Son of God had to come down out of heaven and bear a cross and be crucified and suffer for our sins. So we're not fooling anybody. And so bring it out. Confess it. And in, in that confession is, is really the first freeing step from bondage to sin. Bringing it out. Then secondly is to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So if you think about it, our hearts are like vacuums. They, they got they, they to be something there. That if you just take out this sin, this, this love, and let me rewind a little bit. Remember two weeks ago, I think, when we were talking about... Um, those in the flesh can't please God. And we were talking about this, this moral inability to please God. 
our desires are corrupted, right? We're, we're bound to our desires. And if you have this desire for sin and it's controlling you, and, and you bring it out, and you confess it, and you put accountability steps into place to make sure that, that you're really fighting this sin and it's not taking place in your life, what you have just done is you have created that vacuum in your affections. And you're going to love something, right? And you're going to be driven by your loves and your affections. And so you, you remove this one love and something else is just going to suck in that vacuum. It's going to fill up with something. So you've got to replace it. You've got to replace these desires for sin in the flesh with desire for things of the Spirit. And you do that by setting your mind on the Spirit. You contemplate the, the glories of the gospel. Like you could literally spend all day thinking about what I said about Father, Son, and Spirit existing for eternity as a community of love. You could start your day out thinking about that and just chew on it all day long and you would have plenty to chew on. <laughs> right? Set your mind. And that's glorious and that's amazing. Right? So there, there's plenty there in God to love. In fact, that is the only place we'll actually be satisfied. Was it Augustine said, you made us uh, for yourself and our hearts are restless until they're found in you. So we're all looking for our affections to be captivated by the glory of God. And, and you've got to see the glory before you can be captivated by it. So set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And number three uh, is real Christian community. So I really jumbled up my list here. But this real Christian community um, is where those things that are running around in your mind and in your heart, and they come out in confession, and you experience love and forgiveness from someone in the flesh across the table from you or beside you. Those are the moments where the gospel is no longer theoretical to you, but it's real life. But it's real life. And that, that community is found in the local church. It's found in the local church. Many of you are members of a church. Uh, and this is important. What we do here on Sunday nights is a ministry of the church, but it's not primarily the church, you see? Because in the church, this is more than just 18 through 25-year-olds and Pastor Mike. <laughs> I was the guy you was referencing about sick and on a verge of death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an object lesson. But, guys, I'm telling you, you will not know what it's like to be part of this type of gospel community until you're a part of it. And you guys are, like, getting into it. Like, I'm watching you guys take shape. Uh, you're not there yet. You've got a, a bit to go, but you're close. And I, I promise you, when you're there, you'll know. You're like, wow. And then five years now from now, you're going to look back and it's like, that was, that was good. And, I'm, and I want that where I am now. So when you leave Valdosta, which none of you are going to do, especially you, Nathan. <laughs> when you leave Valdosta... You're going to want that, and you're going to search that out, and you're going to find it. And if you can't find it, you're going to create it, yeah. right? And so this is important. All right, let me move on, or we'll be here all night. 
Number three, if Christ is in you, you are sons of God. If Christ is in you, you are sons of God. And that means you too, girls. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. So put your finger in that. So he moves into this uh, sort of comparison of a son and a slave. It's a son and a slave. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of slavery versus the spirit of adoption. So are you a son or a slave? The idea is that the son has more access to the master than a slave does. There's no reason for a son to fall back away from his father in fear if his father is the type of father that God the Father is, right? We, of course, we should fear God and have this reverential fear that he's more powerful than us and that he's holy and we're not. And we should fear him. But it should be the type of fear that leads us to respect God and love God and to trust God and never to drive us away from God. So if you have a type of fear that, that causes you to run from God, you actually don't fear him enough because you can't escape him. He's more powerful than you. But if you have the proper type of fear, the fear of a well-disciplined son, then where else would you go but to your father? And so this fear draws us into him, not away from him. We don't fall back into fear as a slave would be, but, but, but we run to our father who is good and who loves us and has adopted us and called us his own. Any of you adopted? Are any of you adopted in here? Okay. I was hoping there'd be one of you. I can make a, I was gonna make a joke about how you being more special because you got chosen. <laughs> but think about what adoption says. Is that, that you were brought into a family whom you had like no legal right to be a part of. Like you just weren't, you were outside of that family. But there was a legal transaction that took place that, that made you lawfully and really a member of this new family in this household, and that is us. We, we are purchased and redeemed and justified and declared sons of God by the judge himself. And so we have this loving access to the Father. Not of fear, but of faith. Have you ever heard anybody talk about what the word Abba means? Abba, Father. And they'll say that it means Daddy. Right? I used to laugh at that and joke at that and just think that was the most cheesy, white bread Christian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and say, you should never say, oh, Daddy God. I used to just, that just made me sick. I never got the whole daddy thing until I was a father. And then one night, laying in the bed with Haddon when he was just like two years old, he goes, Daddy? And man, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. That, that little voice that just trusted me and loved me and wanted me near it just, all that hit me and I just cried like a baby. Because like, that's it. That is Abba. 
That, that is Abba. That is this complete access that, that, you're, that he's not going anywhere and where else would I go but to my Father. And we, we run to him. You are a son of God. You're not a slave, but you're a son. So go to him. Tim Keller said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. We do. So don't think you're bothering your father with your petty little needs because you're scared of the dark. He wants you to come to him and say, Daddy, Abba, Father, where else would I go? Don't run from him, but run to him. So we've been made sons of God by this Spirit, and, and the Spirit Himself bears witness that this is legit. And there's times in our life where we say, I don't think I'm a son of God. If I am, I'm the bad son. And then we rely upon the witness of the Spirit to remind us that we are sons of God. What does it say in verse 16? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So how do you know if you're a child of God? Do you have this witness of the Spirit? Do you have an affection for God? It says, that's your father. You are a child of God. You're not a slave. You're a child of God. Go to your father. Do you have that witness in your spirit, in your soul? And if you don't have that voice, you don't have that spirit, then maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe the spirit of Christ is not in you. Right? But if Christ is in you, you have these things. And the good thing is that anybody can become a child of God by adoption through faith in Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ, that He is uh, the only way to the Father, that He has uh, paid your debts, and there's nothing that stands between you and God anymore. You believe this gospel, and you can be a child of God and have this witness of the Spirit. One little thing else here I wanted to point out is notice in verse 16 that it says the Spirit Himself bears witness. Notice that the Spirit is a Himself and not a Itself. Okay? This is just free on the side. This has nothing to do with the sermon. He's a Himself, not an Itself. So if any of you have influenced by Jehovah Witness theology, Jehovah's Witness theology teaches that the Spirit is an It. It's an impersonal force. And that's not what Romans chapter 8 says. It's the Spirit Himself uh, is, um, bears witness with our spirits. So that's just a little aside. And he says, if we are children, then we're heirs. We're heirs. We have an inheritance. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So this, I told you to put your finger, girls, in why you're sons of God. And here's where that's relevant. Because in, in the ancient uh, Roman and Jewish culture, um, girls did not receive the inheritance from their father. Um, this would be the, the inheritance of the firstborn son that would receive the inheritance. Because the idea is the daughter, daughter would then marry a man who has received that inheritance and it's the way the economy uh, works. And so it might rub against sort of our egalitarian sense of it, sensibilities where anything guys can do, we can do better, right? What is really being said in this and by you being called a son of God is that you are 
are as equal an equal inheritance in the gospel as any man is. Right? That you are have the same status before God in terms of justification and righteousness and love and acceptance as any man is. That you are a son of God in the fact that you receive the inheritance of God. And so that matters. And so when the Bible uses this patriarchal language, um, it's actually not um, in opposition to women at all. Um, it's actually to establish a high view of women. Um, Christians, particularly in the first century, uh, were, were known for their high view of women and, and high regard of women um, and treatment of women as equal image bearers and equaler, equal inheritors of all that is in Christ. So don't believe the feminist lie that, that Christians uh, oppress women because of their theology. Um, that's not what we see in this passage. It says your heirs, so let's look at this uh, inheritance that we have. There's kind of two, two aspects of this, and the first is the most mind-blowing. It says that we are heirs of God. And now I, I thought about this, and I'm not a Greek scholar, and I, this might be wrong. But we're heirs of God. What do we inherit? God. God is our inheritance as believers. We, we, be, we inherit God himself in this gospel. God is the ultimate prize. It's not that you come to God so that you can get some other prize, right? Some other thing in your life. You come to God because he is the prize. I think of Shailen. I was telling you about Shailen, the only rapper I've ever listened to. He's got this song called False Teachers. And it's uh, sort of calling out the prosperity gospel. Name drops a bunch of false teachers. And, and one of the things he says in there is like, if you're coming to God for money, he's not your God, money is. And so the idea is that God is the prize. And if you haven't set your mind on the things of the Spirit and you haven't seen the glory of God, that doesn't make any sense to you. But if your, if your mind is set on the Spirit and you have seen the glory of God, that makes total sense to you, right? And that should be resonating with you. But we're also, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ as we are united to Him. Later in Romans, in uh, chapter 8, verse 32, it says, He, God, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All right, we get God and you get all things. Everything that is Christ's reward and His inheritance as the, the beloved Son of God, we get in on that by total grace. By total grace. We are co-heirs with Christ. That He is not ashamed of you, but He considers you a co-heir. Wow. Matthew 5, 5 says, The meek inherit the earth. All things are yours in Christ because all things are His, and you are united to Him by His Spirit. So if Christ is in you, you are sons of God. Now this future glory, inheriting all things, sin being no more, you're completely at peace with God and yourself and each other. This future glory that we all long for and we want only follows a life of present sufferings. 
present sufferings. And that's where we'll go in the final point. If Christ is in you, you will suffer unto glory. So if I was really trying to build a big college ministry right now, I would leave out this final point. You know, and say that, hey, you can come be a Christian, right? You're a son of God. I probably would say that you're a son and daughter of God if I were trying to do that. And I, I might not talk about mortifying sin too much. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, you might want to cut a few more things. A few more things. <laughs> well, that's just to start all over. You have eternal life. These are glorious things. Who, who wouldn't want that? But Jesus says you've got to count the costs. You've got to count the costs. And uh, you've got to bear the cross in following him. That if, you, if Christ is in you, you will suffer. Why? He suffered. Are you greater than him? Ligon Duncan said, God only had one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. So this glorification that we will experience, and we'll unpack more later as we get further in Romans, is provided that we suffer with Christ. Is provided that. Look at that. It's what it says, verse 17, in the second half of it. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. It's necessary. You can't get the crown without the cross. And the cross comes before the crown, right? There's no other way to that glory. Then there's no other way to that glory than through the way of the cross. And, and we mustn't forget that. That's because glory is not cheap. You know, the, the, the word for glory literally is weight, heaviness. It's not cheap. It's not something that's fragile. It's not something that's uh, trendy in the moment, but it's glorious. It's weighty. It's not cheap. And the glory that God possesses and, and reveals in creation and mostly in the gospel is a glory that's magnified through suffering. Think about this. God's whole purpose in all of his works is to glorify his own name, right? To glorify himself for, for the world and all that's created in it to behold our God and say, wow, amazing. It's glorious. And think about this. He could have glorified himself any way he wanted to, but the way that he wanted to glorify himself was through the salvation of fallen creatures by grace, through faith, through a cross. That a cross is at the center point of all of history. And God says, there is where my, my glory is most magnified. He says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to himself. And the way that he's lifted up is upon a cross. That is where we see the glory of God. This humility, this grace that gives of himself for those who are weaker, for those who are in rebellion, and for those who can't help themselves. He gives of himself. And he experiences weakness. And so your suffering, Christian, 
is an identification with Christ unlike any other. And it is a Christian calling. It is a Christian calling. So I think that identification with Christ is sort of a phrase that I've put away in my mental and spiritual filing cabinet for the day that I need it. For the day that my sufferings are unbearable. And I can say, this is identification with Christ. That through my sufferings, I know Jesus more. Because I'm, I experienced life as he experienced it. And he didn't even deserve it. I, I totally deserve it. You see? And so our suffering presses us into who Jesus is and his love for us, unlike anything else can, which is why it's a Christian calling. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's part of your call is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. We walk where he has walked. Colossians 1, 24-25, Paul, who knew much suffering in his ministry, says, I rejoice now in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. I didn't understand this passage the first 27 times I read it. How is Christ lack, Christ's afflictions lacking, Paul? I guess blasphemous to say that Christ's afflictions were lacking. What do you mean by that? How are you filling up what Christ was lacking? Is his suffering somehow insufficient and we need to suffer more to make it truly reach a certain level? That's not what he's saying. What was lacking in Christ's afflictions to the Colossians? to those in Colossae. They didn't see it. They didn't witness it. They didn't see Jesus persevere through it. But in Paul's ministry, they see it. They see one who is persevering through afflictions for the glory of God, who is being uh, persecuted for his faith, who is suffering weakness. And so, by observing Paul's sufferings, they are seeing Christ's sufferings with their own eyes, is what he's saying. So then he says, because of that, I rejoice in my sufferings. If my sufferings get to do that for you, they're worth it. They're worth celebrating and rejoicing in. So, Christian, suffer well. Suffer well. Do not fear and run to your Father. You may suffer even unto death, but if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Philippians 1.18.21 says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And later in his life, Paul says this to Timothy, 
in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, he's about to shed his blood, spill his blood. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So, if Christ is in you, live out and long for that resurrected life. Put sin to death. Embrace the spirit of adoption and know Christ in your sufferings that you will then know him also in his glory. Uh, may God do this among us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word again. We ask that uh, what we have heard tonight uh, not be wasted, that it would not return void, but your spirit, your spirit that dwells within those who love your appearing, your spirit of those whom you have saved and brought to yourself. We ask that he would bring this word home into our hearts, that he would apply it and give it roots and depth in our lives that it would bear fruit from now on. God, I pray for those who may be here who do not have the Spirit of Christ and do not know Him personally, have not experienced this repentance and uh, faith in Christ in any real meaningful way. God, I pray that Your Spirit would bring conviction, that He would bring clarity, and that He would uh, point their hearts to Jesus, show them His beauty, His glory and that they would confess that He is Lord and follow Him, and that they would um, rejoice with His people and be known um, so that you would um, care for them as the, the good Father that you are. And God, we ask that now as we go, um, that you make us effective in ministry, that we would proclaim this gospel, this salvation, this hope for a sick and dying world and a this hope in a, a depressed and purpose, purposeless world, um, that we would proclaim this message and that life and purpose and meaning uh, would be found in Christ and that he would be glorified through it. And we pray this in his name. Amen.